Welcome to the Ghost Writer and Pup. This is <laughs> this is episode 13 of the journal series. Sorry, just got a bit distracted uh, by a giant bug flapping against my window. I never know if it's going to be those murder hornets. Apparently one was found not far from me in Niagara Falls just yesterday. One of my friends reported. So that's great. Because one more thing to worry about going outside is exactly what I needed. Anyway... Thank you for joining me on this podcast. If you're new, welcome. This is a podcast ostensibly about <laughs> writing, creativity, uh, talk conversations that matter with the world's you know up and coming authors, writers, artists, thinkers, coaches, etc. This particular journal series began, I would suggest, beginning at entry number one. This began a few weeks ago as part of my attempt to get back into the habit of writing a daily journal, just one page a day in a lined 8 by 12 sheet of paper, basically, in a journal. A special shout out to Julia Veenstra, amazing painter, artist, entrepreneur in Hamilton, who designs all of, uh, basically, the journals that I buy, I only get from her. They're beautiful, they're elegant, they're easy to use, I love them. That just feels really great using them. So uh, you can check her out at Julia Veenstra, V as in Victor, E-E, Echo Echo, N is in November, Sierra, Tango, Romeo, Alpha, basically Veenstra, uh, JuliaVeenstra.com. Anyway, yes, I know the phonetic alphabet. Uh, so let's, let's get to it then. This particular entry, I'm still on the theme, as you'll find out from yesterday, if you listen to yesterday's. I'm still in this anti-uppity, superior, intellectual, lit snob mood so <laughs> that comes through here and i won't uh, this one will be a little different though because i'll actually be reading from three of my favorite passages instead of just telling you what i'm talking about i want to show you here we go for the entry for wednesday may 27th 2020 good writing like good food is often simple it doesn't have to sound like a grad school paper for you for your English thesis defense committee. It doesn't have to be militaristically correct like a presidential or corporate briefing document. It should be evocative, vivid, accurate, truthful, compelling, inspiring, persuasive, depending on what you wanted to do for your desired audience and what you wanted to do for yourself. As such, I want to dedicate this entry to three passages that do that for me, to give you a taste of what I mean by all of this waxing philosophically on, well, ordinary fellow writing. Some of these you might consider to be literary, and certainly I readily admit that I've been in the storytelling and word, and word trade for so long that my baseline for simplicity might be a couple of notches higher than many. I am fully aware that I am coming across to many of you listening as precisely the superior intellectual snot that I myself despise. I own that. Still, I want you to see the same beauty that I see in these passages. At the very least, so that you can feel the way or something like the way I feel when I read them. The first is a passage from the TV show Babylon 5 which I watched during my teens and was a major influence on my writing, storytelling, and perspective on life. The second 
is from Stephen King's Dark Tower series, Book One, The Gunslinger, which, by the way, is the first manuscript he ever wrote, but it was not published until well after Carrie. I think it was might have even been on the scale of uh, 10 years. I'm not, I can't remember at this very moment. His passage is just one sentence. One, that's it. The last that I'll read is from Whitley Strieber's lurid novel, Lilith's Dream, which was the last of a trilogy of vampire horror. So here we go. So this one is leading off. This is the quote from Babylon 5 that I mentioned. I recently saw it yesterday. I started rewatching the series on DVD when my internet cut out the other day. And now I'm hooked. This one had me weak. It, it seems... It, it, I, okay, I'm not going to qualify how I felt. How I felt is how I felt. You don't like it? Screw you. <laughs> here, here it is, though. Ask 10 different scientists about the environment, population control, genetics, and you'll get 10 different answers. But there's one thing every scientist on the planet agrees on. Whether it happens in 100 years, or 1,000 years, or a million years, eventually, our sun will, go will grow cold and go out. When that happens, it won't just take us. It'll take Marilyn Monroe and Lao Tzu and Einstein, and Morobuto, and Buddy Holly, and Aristophanes. And all of this, all of this, was for nothing. Unless we go to the stars. This bit of dialogue was spoken by, in the first season, by the character Commander Jeffrey Sinclair, who was played with just perfection. Uh, by the late actor, um, let me just, I've forgotten his name now, Michael O'Hare. It's just a really, tra it's a real tragedy that nearly, I think about a third now of the cast of Babylon 5 have passed away, of the main characters anyway, and Michael O'Hare was a, I believe he was a stage actor as well, but the words were written by J. Michael Straczynski, the creator of the show, and you might know J. Michael Straczynski from about 15 other things uh, that he's worked on, including most recently Sense8, which he, um, which he basically co-created or co-produced, I can't remember which, with uh, the Wachowski sisters. So it was pretty, he, it, it's, Straczynski's one of those writers. It makes me, the, the passage I read, it just makes me, yeah, it makes me feel like wobbly in the knees. It's just, like there's big sighs connected to it because there's so much truth in it. And it's, it also just expands your sense that, you know, if we don't leave this planet, even if we were to solve the climate problem tomorrow, eventually... If it isn't this, it's going to be something else. And if we're only on one world, everything that we are, everything that we've built, every story that's ever been created by humanity is lost in the firmament. And so we have to go to space. We have to keep trying. We have to do all of these different things at once. And there's so much of that captured in that passage. It just makes me feel, yeah, just big size. I just love it. I believe they ended the episode with it. Um, Commander Sinclair was 
giving that I gave that statement in response to a question of from a reporter that was interviewing him for for the news uh, in story in universe for the ISN network. Why should we go to space? So that's the first passage. The second passage that I want to read is uh, again from Stephen King's The Gunslinger. And it's just one, maybe two sentences tops. And it's this. Go then. There are other worlds than these. I can get into the context of the story. The Dark Tower deals with a lot of interdimensional, interstory travel. In fact, it's connected to uh, the Dark Tower is kind of the architecture. You know, we talk about the Marvel Cinematic Universe, how everything is connected that way. But the Dark Tower involved many worlds. And, it, you know, at least two come to mind that they connected a lot of Stephen King's books, including... There's one passage where they get a, there's one part where a character from Salem's Lot appears in this story. There's another where the characters find themselves wandering through the super the post superflu wasteland of America from the stand. There's even later on after Stephen King suffered a near fatal vehicle accident, somebody hit him while he was walking. Um, he's just out walking at his cabin in, in, in Maine. He even wrote an alt-universe statement, two of them, an alt, you know, two alt-universes where one is where he was killed by that van. And the second one is where he actually met, meets his own characters, another version of him. So it was really trippy. You know, alt-universe fiction is one of my favorites. <clears throat> It's what I write in. It's what I think about a lot uh, these days, especially. And, you know, even though it's trendy now with things like The Man in the High Castle with Rick and Morty, uh, it's it's been around for a while, friends. So Stephen King was there, too. This is really great. But go then. There are other worlds than these. That I, I want to have that tattooed to my arm. I was going to have that done before... You know, it was, it's been perpetually on my to-do list. And I think once this quarantine lifts, that's one of the first things I'm going to do. When the tattoo parlors open up, I'm just going to have that written on my left forearm. Because I think there's just such profound wisdom. Sometimes the simplest statements, it's not particularly flowery. I get no indication that Stephen King went to university to study. I don't, he's not rubbing his vocabulary in our faces as if we're a bunch of plebes. It's just, but he's, he's got something so profound in that one sentence. And I think it speaks to more than just the in-universe stuff. And the last one, and I'm only providing the barest context for these. There's a bit of a longer post from, yeah, it's actually, this is going to take, uh, this is a couple pages from Whitley Strieber's Lilith, novel, Lilith's Dream. Whitley's take on vampires was is greatly informed by his real life experiences with entities that he has come to regard as the visitors you can go to unknowncountry.com and learn more about that from from whitley's own mouth basically to kind of see that you could also definitely buy his books from there 
I won't get too much into that. I've actually been, well, Whitley's been in my life. Whitley Strieber's writing has been in my life since I was essentially single digits old. I remember seeing his book Communion on display at a book fair when I was in like grade three or grade four or something like that. You can't miss those big gray alien eyes that just give you nightmares as a child. And so, I don't know, like, uh, so I've been reading him forever and uh, his nonfiction, and then I got into his fiction um, in my 20s. And, oh, this story was just great. So, Lilith's Dream, it was bloody. It was just soaked in blood. So I'm actually going to find, I'm just looking through the novel here. And I don't want to, if you, I do, I do want you to read it, so I'm not going to spoil anything. So I'm going to start in the middle of the action with a character name, with, with no context once again. Uh, what is his name? Oh my goodness. Let's see. Ian Ward. This starts with uh, a character named Ian Ward. He is a boy, teenager. <clears throat> so I'll see if I could start, if I could... Uh, Start here in a place that isn't going to spoil you, spoil anything for you. Ian Ward. Now Ian waited for Hamida beside a fountain in the Keras's first and largest courtyard. This is in uh, this is in Egypt, by the way. I think it's. Let's see. I believe it's in Cairo. Yep, in the ancient part of Cairo, according to this book. He sat on its edge, watching slow carp moving in the clear, cool water that bubbled up from a copper flower in its center. The fountain itself was tiled in an intricate design of lilies. He dragged his fingers in the water, letting the carp come up and nibble them. Far away in the house, his mother was singing. In all of his life, she had never done this. Not before now. A great burden had been lifted from her shoulders, he knew when it had become clear that he was not going to feed. It wasn't that he didn't want to, but that he absolutely would not, not ever. The way that it had felt within him, as if he had briefly been a god, would haunt him forever. But his reverence for life went deep, arising as it did out of the love that was the truest definition of his soul. Then the bells jangled that indicated that the outside door was being opened. Ian raised his eyes. Hamida came down the long colonnade and into the courtyard. He had loved beautiful women, but never one like Hamida. He had not known what pure in what innocence was before he met her, or how pure the eyes of a girl could be. He had been drawn to her by an overwhelming power, greater even than the power that had drawn him to Leo, even than Lilith's hypnotizing beauty. Hamida laughed when she saw him, she drew off her dark glasses and came down beside him. She had been at the hairdresser. As a copt, C-O-P-T, she did not seek the mystery of Sunnah. She would never wear the Muslim veil, nor did this house seek to find itself in the path of the Prophet's own family. The olive skin of her face and her great dark eyes were framed by beautiful black hair, now freshly and fetchingly curled. Do you know what's so funny, she said. Ian shook his head. I thought you'd end up here. This fountain has a legend attached to it. 
So does everything in this house, said Ian. But this one is special. When she looked at him out of those wonderful eyes, he saw nothing else, heard nobody else. Which was as well, because he probably didn't need to see the parents assembled along the second-story colonnade. Tasting of young love from afar. There was a boy living here some time ago. A boy you knew? She had no brothers. Again, she laughed. Ian, this is Egypt. I'm talking about at least a couple of thousand years. Anyway, he was waiting for his lover to return. She had promised him it would take, it would only be an hour. One hour went by and no lover. Two hours, no lover. But he had promised her that he would wait. So he stayed there. He stayed there all night and all day. And then more nights and more days, right where you're sitting now. And nobody could budge him. The story is, he stayed there not for just weeks or months or years, but for a thousand, thousand years, listening to the water and watching the carp, just like what you've been doing. Except I've only been here 30 minutes, not even an hour, said Ian. In Egypt, you don't know. Time is different here, Ian. There are eternities around every corner. So what happened to him? One day, late in the afternoon, there came a tinkle of that bell over there. He looked up. He had no hope by now. He wasn't crazy. And there, in the doorway, was his lover. She came to him in beauty greater than he had ever remembered, and sat down where I am sitting. And he said, Where have you been so long? And she said, Just down to the river to wash my hair. He got angry at her and would not believe her. But he loved her so much he forgave her, and when he would ask her what it was that had taken so long, sometimes she would laugh, and sometimes she would cry, but she would never tell him. That's it? That's the whole story? Is it too Egyptian? I'm so sorry. She tossed her head, and in that moment he knew that he must marry her, that he belonged to Hamida already. Forever after that, she continued, People would whisper that these two lovers had been a thousand years apart and hadn't died, and maybe they were jinn or something. He would laugh when he heard that in the coffee house or in the market and say, no, you're mistaken. It was only an hour that I had waited. So that's why they call it the Fountain of the Hours. Beneath the old plum tree, Ian and Hamida listened for secrets, but only heard a little breeze whispering, in its flowers. What's it saying, Ian? I love you, Hamida. They came closer, twining their fingers. My father used to get mad if a boy wanted to kiss me, but I'm older now. He would have done it into the night and eternity, but she turned her head away after only a moment. We must go to them now. They're expecting us on the veranda. That wasn't much of a kiss, said Ian. Oh no, it was eternal. Three seconds, all kisses are eternal. Yeah, <laughs> so this is one of those things where it's really the last sentence, all kisses are eternal. But if I don't give you the context there, at least a little bit, you don't really have, it just doesn't feel the same. It doesn't build, it's not just about two people. It's not just about male gazy type of falling for somebody. 
I've given you what I've given you is profoundly out of the greater context of the story and what all those characters have just been through, what Ian has just been through. Hamida belongs to a family where her father was also involved in a lot of the bloodshed to try to save everybody, but she was sheltered from it, and so and her father and mother made sure of that. And so, but Ian was not spared. And so when you under, if, if you read the rest of the trilogy, if you read the rest of just that one book, oddly enough, I'd read this book last in the trilogy. If you read just that one book and you see what kind of darkness and horror and loss and grief had happened before, you'll actually see that moment, that scene with the sweetness that it's intended. I remember reading that scene and then leading up to that line and oh I think I was in I think I was giddy or just blissed out for like hours afterward you see writing isn't just about the design of the story I teach story design I coach people in it it's about but 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 design does matter sometimes the architecture matters quite a bit because if you don't provide contrast, if you don't take the, the reader on a ride, then when, they, when you put sweet... You, you know, it's like they said, one of the characters said in the film Vanilla Sky, another great movie, you know, with, with some really remarkable writing moments. You cannot know the sweet without the sour, without the bitter. And so you have to provide that contrast in your writing. And, you know, those passages, the three of them, I picked those because I just love them. If you notice, simple language, you don't get the impression that, again, you don't get that impression that, uh, you know, you're, the, any, either, any of those writers, you know, Straczynski or Strieber or King were trying to show off. It just felt they were actually conveying a message. Big pictures too. I mean, I love this big picture stuff. Maybe you didn't get anything from those. I can't really help that. Whatever floats your boat and whatever sinks it, that's not my business. But if you felt a little bit of what I feel, then this was worth it. If you take any lessons from it, it's to write truthfully to what you want to say. And that's all you can do. Anyway. Thank you for listening. That's the end of this episode of uh, Ghost Rider and Pup, uh, journal, the journal series, episode 13. If there is a topic or journaling prompt you want me to explore in a future episode, I am going to continue these, although I have, a, I have another series that I want to start up soon. I'm just working out how that's going to work. The best part about your own podcast is that you could basically do what you want with it and bring anything back anytime you want to, and this is mine. So uh, send me your topics, Jody, jodyaberdeen.com. I will happily write one for, you know, do an episode for you. And if you want to, if you're an author, if you're a writer, if you are any type of storyteller, any type of creative person, <coughs> excuse me, somebody with a big picture perspective, and you'd love to be on an interviews, again, jody, jodyaberdeen.com. I'd love to have you. And aside from that, thanks for listening again. Be well. Stay safe, stay healthy, wear a mask, and have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your day.